Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Joining us now is Rochelle Thomas, who is the director of the Greenwich Audubon, which does a remarkable array of wonderful things to keep us, um, well, to keep our engagement with our environment alive and well and to keep us educated and informed about what's happening with the birds and the bees. Rochelle Thomas, welcome to the show today. Hello. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I saw that your spark bird, tell us what a spark bird is, was some a bird that you spotted in Costa Rica. Is that right? That is right. So um, a little over a decade ago, I went on a trip to book for many things, um, just kind of enjoying a vacation, but also uh, hiring nature guides in the local area and Monteverde Cloud Forest. And I was with a birding guide, um, and he spotted immediately when we went into the woods um, a resplendent quetzal, a male. And like pretty much from then on, I thought birding was a cool thing. And so got involved in wildlife rehab and and um, then ended up getting a second master's in ecology, evolution, and environmental biology, and studying snow geese, and, and here I am. Okay, so and let me ask you something. What's the mission of the Greenwich Audubon, and, and how much land do you control? In other words, because we know some Audubons here in Fairfield, they have beautiful nature centers. Tell me about what are the resources of the Greenwich Audubon? Right. So we have um, we have about 700 acres of land in total across seven sites. Currently, um, our main center is approximately 285 acres. Um, that's in our main sanctuary, which is comprised comprises uh, you know sort of woodland, and we have a gateway to nature, so some meadow habitat. Um, we have uh, a, a large center um, and some other adjacent buildings where we do educational programs and lectures. We run a day camp. And so the mission of the center is really to be a place where we can do active conservation of birds, but also teach the public about um, ways they can help birds and and other wildlife um, thrive in our local community and beyond. Are we hearing fewer birds in Connecticut this spring or is it just me? 
Um, you know, that's really interesting because first of all, I just moved to Connecticut. Okay. I'm happy to have you. Where were you? Are you coming from yeah. New York? Where are you coming from? Yeah. 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 No, I was on the Upper West Side for 23 years. And previously I was the president of the Linnaean Society of New York, which is an amateur naturalist um, group that goes back to 1878. And looking through historical records in our archives, I think that's one of the things where you can even somewhat anecdotally, you know, draw a conclusion that the um, abundance of birds is is probably decreasing over time. And, and we know this with recent studies that we're, you know, losing 2 billion birds a year. And there's been some, some really, really good work, especially out of Cornell Lab of Ornithology, that, that's showing that that's really probably true. So we probably are. The short answer is, I'm sure we're hearing fewer birds. Um, but that said, there's been some like pretty good migration days where where the hills are alive with music. Well, I, I <laughs> you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, they loved birds, right? They always talked about larks and, and all, all these beautiful birds. They were always in their imagery while Oscar was writing the words. But he, oh, he loved birds so much. And I always sing his songs, so I always think about the birds, too. We're chatting with Rochelle Thomas, 203-333-9422. Um, what, what do you think that we we should be knowing about birds right now? In other words, should we be having apps that have us notice and pinpoint what song we're hearing is from what bird? Uh, should we be having oh. apps that tell us what, if we can take a photograph of a bird, what type of bird that is? Do you believe that that kind of education is very important for us? I do. Um, so many of my friends who are not necessarily bird oriented and even I would say marginally nature oriented have been introduced to some of the apps. Um, the one, you know, I use also to confirm what I'm hearing is uh, the Merlin um, app that Cornell uh, has put out. Audubon also has an app that's it's very good. It's uh, photographs and it's really good ID um, tool. But I think it's really helpful because once you know something and and you you can then care about it, you, if you it's, I think it's hard to care about something that you don't know anything about. But if you hear a bird singing in your backyard and you know that bird, it becomes it's, it's your bird. And I think that that's those sorts of like pathways for people to care and take action are really really essential. What are the types of birds that we most commonly see here in Fairfield County? We're chatting with Rochelle Thomas of Greenwich Audubon. Well, the most common birds, I think what an interesting story is, some of our most common birds are some of them like new residents. And I'm going to use, and, and I think that we can weave into a, a little bit of a, a climate change story. And so okay. one of one of the birds I think is really easily identifiable when I take people out to, you know, the Connecticut woods, if they don't know anything about birds, is the red-bellied woodpecker, which has a red head and it's very confusing, but it's a relatively large woodpecker. But a few decades ago, we would have never um, encountered this bird in the Connecticut woods because it was restricted to more southern states. Now, with climate change and rain shifts, it's you know a really easy bird. It has this rattle call. Um, once you hear the rattle, it's 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 a really good first bird call for people to learn, and um, it's distinct and memorable. So I think that's that's a bird that we would see. And right now, we're going to be we're in the middle of migration, so we're going to see all of the wood warblers and the thrushes and the gross peaks and all of the sort of jewels, um, you know, of the bird world that are passing through. 
and setting up shop here to breed also at this time in, in their Connecticut territory. So it's a great time of year to get out. But I think learning and, and you know, finding a few key um, residents or, or local birds is always a good thing that people can do to sort of start, um, you know, building their, you know, um, you know, bird library. We're chatting with Rochelle Thomas. We're talking about Greenwich Audubon, 203-333-9422. One of the things we talk about a lot on our show, Rochelle, um, is how public policy and the bills that come through our legislature can have a, an impact on our environment, positive or negative. Are there, are there any specific public policy initiatives that the Audubon is supporting right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's two. Um, and I, I'm going to say one of the big ones in Greenwich Audubon, if people don't know about it, I think it's most famous. We're located on uh, a pretty high point in Greenwich called Quaker Ridge. And every fall, um, we, we have a hawk watcher who's uh, employed along with a volunteer corps to come out and, and count the hawks as they're migrating over the ridge every wow, day. And, and really? Now, how do they know? Yeah. That, let me just ask the dumb question. How do they know they're not counting the same hawk twice? I mean, birds fly. They, they take loops. Sure. Well, they're moving in a linear path, so they're moving along their migratory route, and they're wow. doing long-distance migration. So, okay. you know, for instance, there's an osprey right now, if you go to Greenwich Point Park, uh, that's nesting on the statue. I think that they'd prefer to be nesting on the platform next to the statue. But that bird is, is it may travel in the winter to as far as Argentina. So hawks are so unbelievable. Migratory. Don't you think yeah. it's so unbelievable, the migration of birds? I've sort of woken up to it in the last year or two because I've been doing a lot of reading and interviewing. I can't believe what birds do. The birds, they sleep as they're flying. I mean, it's just... When I was a kid, well, I heard about migration. I was like, okay, whatever. Now that I'm an adult, I'm in awe of what these birds do. I'm in complete awe. Lisa, when I see a little tiny ruby-throated hummingbird, you know, at the Greenwich Center in someone's backyard, and I realized that bird flew over the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you know, in like one flight and made it all the way from, you know, thousands of miles away to the backyard, and it weighs what at most 10 grams that to me it's never i mean it's 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 like a miracle every time it is a miracle it is yeah 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 it is i mean it's miraculous okay so tell me about these public policy bills then we're going to let the callers okay go ahead sure sure so one of them i would say uh one because i think it's sort of uh, a little bit near and dear to the greenwich center because we are known for our hawk watch and i encourage everyone to come out in the fall and and watch hawks with us is probably the bill for um, about rodenticides that's been proposed. Uh, it's a Connecticut state bill. I think it was introduced in January. And that's really, really important because I also come, I have a wildlife rehab background. And, um, we, you know, a number of hawks that go into rehab facilities or end up in vets offices are, um, you know, victims of rodenticide poisoning. You know, you know what, Rochelle? They gutted yeah, the bill. Yeah. They completely gutted the bill, okay? It came out of committee. I don't know if you know this. It came out of committee with an exception you could drive your truck through. It came out of committee. Yeah. No, no, listen. It came out of committee, and the exception is that any licensed uh, pet pest exterminator can still use them. So who do you think is using them anyway? Right. Well, Lisa, can I ask, does it still apply to the agricultural context or? 
Do you know? Because the agricultural context is, is you know, like there, I, I believe, I thought that the bill was like in two parts, sort of, that there's also for ag reduction. Well, I don't know. Maybe the ag reduction piece uh, came out intact, but I do know that the original bill as written basically banned the use of rodenticides. The bill that came out of committee banned the use of rodenticides except for people who are licensed pest exterminators. So presumably they could go to agricultural places. They could go wherever they're needed. Interesting. But well, anyway, it doesn't, next, mean, next, listen, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean it shouldn't yeah. pass because sometimes these things have to pass incrementally and you pass it one way one year and you see how it's working out and then you try and amend it the following year to include a class of pest exterminators with maybe some exceptions for some kind of infestations like rats in certain places. I mean, I mean that's the issue. I've been speaking to legislators about it and a lot of them are loath to deprive um, pest exterminating companies of the tool that they might need to really get rid of rats. So, I, I mean, that's the issue for them. But I also, uh, at least I think, I think you should have on our policy director for Connecticut, Robert LaFrance, because he's really the expert, as you see, I'm behind the news on it, but I, I will, I will look into this more, but anyhow, support, I, we support the, 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 we, we do not support the use of uh, rodenticides in, in the hawk world. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Me neither. Yeah. And is there anything else that you uh, specifically are thinking about right now? Then we're going to go to the calls. Sure. Yeah, I think the Lights Out initiative that's oh, yes, wide right now. Oh, yes, the Lights Out. Is... Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great one. Um, you know, I spoke to the governor uh, about that on our show. He wasn't aware oh, of it. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It no, really it's cool. really yeah. – it, and I just coming from New York State, there's also a New York State, you know, initiative for Lights Out that's, um, that's very active. And we just um, – all the the local organizations in Greenwich are are banding together for a lights out Greenwich um, movement. And on June seventh, uh, I think at seven p.m. at the Parat Library, we're going to have uh, a talk about lights out Greenwich and and how that connects to lights out Connecticut and everything. So I encourage people to learn more about it there if they're local. Yeah, it's definitely a movement. The first lights out um, they did at Trinity Church in Southport uh, not too long ago, and. Just uh, to educate all of us, the Lights Out bill is very, very limited in scope. It's meant to be a leader, and it basically is for the state of Connecticut to police its own buildings to turn the lights out during some migratory buildings between, I think it's 11 and 6 or 11 and 5. Um, When I mentioned it to Governor Lamont, he said, I don't know why we're not doing that anyway. And that is the point, right? Like, where did we decide that we needed to light up the night skies just because? But it needs, I'm so encouraged to hear that Greenwich is leading. I've, I've been hoping that my own town, Westport, would also get on board with this. And I think that the commercial buildings are really one of the very easy places where we could begin to try and uh, amend our local codes to, you know, to insist that um, some of these buildings are not completely lit up from within at night. I mean, it's crazy. It's not to mention a huge yeah. waste of electricity for the rest of us. Right. Yeah. It's really bills. like a double benefit. It's a double right. Benefit. And it's also a, and a human health benefit too. You know, it is. So. Uh, Rochelle, will you stay with us? We're chatting with Rochelle Thomas about Audubon and about various initiatives. We're going to take your calls right after this on WICC at 203-333-9422. We'll be right back. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And welcome back. We're chatting with Rochelle Thomas, who is the new Audubon Center Executive Director at Greenwich, which uh, has a tremendous amount of acreage in Greenwich that is left to the wild and has been known as a community that tries to lead in the way of nature and um, encouraging us to be good stewards of the environment. Let's go to Kevin from West Haven. Kevin, do you have a question for Rochelle? Hello. I do. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. And Michelle. Uh, Yeah, I go to the shore every day and uh, for years. And actually, I'm at the shore right now. And we used to have monk parakeets uh, all over. Yeah, we and did. We had them in Westport at Campo, too, Kevin. That's right. right in, Bridge, I, in Bridgeport. But uh, it, it was just a kick to see them all the time. And they fly, you know, in flocks. And I haven't seen them in uh, I don't know how many years now. And I know they used to nest in the Transformers and they took that down. But it's a shame. I just uh, don't see them anymore. Yeah, we're so yeah, about those. Is your, well, a monk parakeet is an introduced species. It's not something that you would have traditionally found here in the, you know, in our environment. They were probably released as pets. There's a couple of flocks that were um, in the New York City area in Greenwood Cemetery, uh, and I think there was one on the Upper West Side that um, really flourished for some time. You know, they might have just moved to better territory. There might just be, you know, limits to their success because this isn't, you know, their native habitat. So I think there's but it's very possible they just move to um, a place that's more desirable for them to live in. Or, you know, birds are, are smart and they, they take advantage of resources and opportunities that are available to them. So um, I wouldn't despair. They could be around. Um, I hope. But, but, you know, it's sort of hard to say. Well, thank you. So in You're other welcome. Words, so, well, I mean, I guess the good news is, uh, Kevin, that, you know, we don't think anything nefarious has happened to them, right? So you're, you're not aware, well, Rochelle, I, of any kind of mass event. They just seem to have disappeared, huh? Well, I think what happened, Lisa, is they used to nest on transformers. And you could see the nest clearly. They were huge. And I was told that they took and saw they took all the nests off the transformer. And after that, I just haven't seen them. Uh, you know, they didn't make nests uh, and any new ones here. Anywhere else. They said... You don't want us to be gone. They were such pretty, pretty little things. Yeah, you to were. See. Yeah. And you would see people from out of town would see them, and they would. They had that that distinct crackle when, and you knew it was them. And you would see people from out of town would look up in awe, and it well, was because just so it was nice so to cool to see a very sort of exotic bird with that plumage. Yeah. It was very different looking. I know. Yeah. And to share that with visitors coming on the shore too was yeah. uh, something that we lost. How yeah. are we doing with the I, it, seagulls, Kevin? You're still seeing plenty of those? You're on the shore. Still I, seeing plenty of seagulls? I do. I, I, uh, seagulls, and uh, usually I feed the squirrels, because uh, when you feed one seagull, you're feeding a 1,000. And uh, 
don't like to attract attention there. But and, and right now it's very beautiful uh, here. So I come here every day. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for the call. Thank you, hey. Lisa. Bye, Michelle. Uh, so, Thank Michelle, you. I've got a question for you about seagulls. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the thing about seagulls is that each one of them looks so different than others. Have you noticed that when you're with seagulls, that they really have an enormous variety of the way they look as as birds? In, in terms of, well, seagulls is sort of a blanket term, or gulls. I mean, there are many, many species of gulls that people are seeing if they're at the shore or oh. on lakes. Or okay, so I don't like have that. an educated There's... eye. So maybe I'm looking at different species of birds and I don't even recognize that. That's possible. Sure. And... No, in gall identification is very, very difficult. I find myself as a sort of medium level birder at best. And but galls do go through uh, a maturation, sort of like bald eagles. Sometimes people see uh, a juvenile bald eagle and it doesn't have that characteristic, you know, dark body and white tail and white head, and it's just sort of mottled looking. But same thing happens with like our most popular gall in the east is probably it's between a herring gall or a ring-billed gall. And uh, the herring gull in particular, I know, goes, you know, it's sort of mottled and, and not that traditional white with the slaty blue wing until it's about three years old. So it looks like a totally different bird uh, until it's a mature adult. So I think that's where you're, you're looking at a flock of gulls and they all just look radically different. And they may be the same species in just different, um, different age classes. Rochelle Thomas, do so there's you take two things. people, do you or do other people in Audubon take people on walks where they're nature walks and you're not already a birder, you're someone like me who just likes them but doesn't know anything about them and we can learn as we walk? A hundred percent. I would say um, we have a great um, uh, bird leader at the center, Ryan McLean, who I think you may have talked to before. And mm-hmm. I would say every walk with Ryan is um, – accessible for uh, a novice to to not birder or someone who just enjoys nature and there's always something to learn often we we lead a, a workshop beforehand so people can can uh, learn about birds before they even go on the walk so. so that's really cool and I have one other question for you before I let you go yep. and then of course I'll let you make whatever plea you want to the rest of us but my question is and I am asking you for a very specific thing what is the best binocular uh, brand? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I need to know this because I have a very good friend, and she, she asked me for binoculars, and I don't know where to turn. What's a good bin, regular binocular for people that's light, lightweight, lightweight? Oh, my gosh, Lisa, this has no answer. I'm so really? sorry. But you, you really, I really recommend if people can go to a place that, unfortunately, uh, Greenwich Audubon used to have more of a binocular uh, store in our nature store. It's been greatly reduced. But if you can go, you need to find the binocular that fits your face correctly. Oh. And that feels light and you kind of almost have to practice. And it's one of those things where there is no best binocular. There's only the best binocular for you. Mm, so it's not a so. great online purchase is what you're saying. I think it's, you know, I think that there's some, depending on your budget, some really, you know, affordable, good, um, entry level. I always recommend people starting out. I think the easiest one is to start with a magnification that's eight by 42. I think that's the steadiest. When you, when you go to things that uh, like let in a little more light, it also is harder if you have a less steady hand. 
Okay. So that's usually what I tell people. Start with 8 by 42s See okay. how that works. But all right. that, that's, that's all I have for you. All right. We got one other caller that I think we're going to be able to fit in. Justin, who's on? Ken in Bridgeport. Hi, Ken. You're on the air with Rochelle Thomas of Greenwich Audubon. How you doing? Um, yeah, you're talking about like eagles. I've been seeing quite a few lately um, and, you know, a lot of other birds, too, that I'm not really sure. Um, I think I think they're falcons. I, I, I'm not really sure. It's kind of like a white and black feathered bird, and they got kind of like a funny shaped head, and they had that kind of falcon type like uh, thing on the top of their head. I've been seeing a lot of those around lately, like on light posts and stuff like that. Maybe they're looking for fish or something like that or, or mice. It sounds like you're probably looking at an osprey. An osprey is sort of a white and black. They would definitely, they're, they're fishers, so you'd see them in places where they could capture um, aquatic prey relatively easily. But like I said, I think for some people, the juvenile bald eagle has that mottled appearance and is sort of dark bodied. And, you know, from a distance, I mean, I can't see very well with clarity from a distance, especially without my glasses. So it's, it's one of the things that I would, my guess is it's one of those two. Um, no, I mean, I saw Osprey yes, yesterday. It wasn't even, even by the water. It was over by like I-95. I think it was like flying around looking for mice. But these, these got to be falcons because, I mean, this, I've been seeing a lot of them lately in different areas. Do we have know? falcons in Connecticut, Michelle? Uh, oh, sure. We have uh, we North do. America's smallest falcon. We have the American kestrel in Connecticut. Oh, okay. But they are a little more colorful, more brown, and they can have some blue on them. And they're quite small. So mm-hmm. what do you say the size was? relative to an osprey of this bird that you're seeing? A little bit smaller than an osprey that I saw yesterday. A little bit smaller than an osprey. I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, a peregrine can sort of be, but peregrine's more brown and, and has more of a diagnostic look. But they would be not as small as a kestrel, but not as big as an osprey. Uh, bird size is also really, really hard. And yeah, it could be or, a baby. Or a female, could be growing. Know. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ken. Real quick, real quick for you, Rochelle, just as a matter of curiosity. An average adult osprey or eagle is eating how many mice a day or how many mice in a couple of days? Give me an idea of their appetite. Well, an osprey is probably eating fish. So I don't think that they're eating mammals as much. They probably, um, I actually have no idea. All right. And on that note. That's okay. Good. (laughs) Rochelle Thomas, you'll have to come back and tell us more. Thank you so much for the work that you do and having us appreciate our natural environment. Uh, Thank you to the Greenwich Audubon as well. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 